Many years ago now, I found myself sitting in the office of the Reverend Jan Eller Isaacs, one of the senior co-ministers at Unity Church Unitarian. You know that Unitarian Universalist Church across the river. I was a student at the time, an intern minister, and I was about to head into my first meeting ever with a family to help them plan for a memorial service for their loved one. I remember rushing into Jan's office in a total panic. It was a moment of abject fear. I literally had no idea what I was going to do when the family arrived. So I brought my legal pad and my pen into Jan's office and I interrupted what she was doing and I said, I need you to tell me exactly what to do and say. So she had me sit down and she gave me some rocket science tips like make sure there are tissues in the room and bring a pitcher of water and some glasses. And then she gave me some of the real advice too. She talked about how to counsel folks about who might speak at a memorial service and what you might want to include or not include. She gave me some specific questions to ask and she reminded me of what I already knew about grief. And then she gave me what I considered the real advice. She put my hands in hers and she looked me square in the eye and she said, Jen, you are exactly enough and you are never enough. You are exactly enough and you are never enough. You have what you need, she reminded me. You have a loving and compassionate heart. You have enough training. You are exactly enough and alone. You can never be enough. Don't forget. Don't forget that love is walking into that room with you, that the holy is walking into that room with you, that whatever process, known or unknown, that needs to unfold for that family is walking into that room with you. You are exactly enough and alone, you are never enough. This phrase, it's become a bit of a mantra for me. It's a way to remember that I have all that I need, whatever situation I'm walking into, be it as a minister or a mother or just a regular old person, I have all that I need. And when I think that I am alone, and when I think that I am all that I need, it is never enough. And this is what I want to talk about today, this idea of enough. I want to talk about how it feels and what it means to know that we are exactly enough. No degree, no job, no school, no career, as Rama said earlier. No impossible standard of someone else's making held out in front of us. And still, enough. I want to talk about making room for one another and for the holy so that we know deep down in our bones that we are not alone, that we act together with all that is good in this world whenever we act to restore ourselves or our families or our world. I wanna talk about the tension that I think lives in our faith and in us, this tension that tells us we are exactly enough and then that we are never enough and the hope that lies there in that very tension. This sermon series that we are right in the middle of now, this sermon series that's titled, We've Been Waiting For You, it's all about hospitality. 
And it's all about taking this phrase that we've been hearing, this we've been waiting for you phrase, and changing it up and rolling it around, changing up who is the we and who is the you, as Justin did last week. And today, I wonder about thinking what it might mean to know that we are absolutely loved for exactly who we are, and yet we are called to something more, too. There's this old saying in our faith tradition that is attributed to one of our ministers, Thomas Starr King, and it goes like this. It describes the roots of our universalist and Unitarian faith, and in it, Thomas Starr King is said to have announced, well, universalists believe that God is too good to damn them, and Unitarians believe that they are too good to be damned. <laughs> so... Universalists believe that God is too good to damn them. Unitarians believe they are too good to be damned. I wonder which one Thomas Stark King might be. <laughs> but I know this is a joke, but I think it points to something deeper, something foundational in our faith tradition and in our theology as well. This is moving on me today. So deeper in our foundation, in our theology. Universalism, on the one hand, is grounded in the idea that all are saved, that no one is outside the circle of God's love, that it is a big, inclusive love that extends to all of us, everyone, no exceptions. That's universalism at our root. Unitarianism, on the other hand, is grounded in what is known as salvation by character. Maybe you've heard it as we are known by our deeds, not our creeds. Maybe you've known it as it is through our actions that we achieve salvation in our lifetime. It's this idea that it is up to us to be constantly striving, ever striving to improve our character and our world. It's been captured in this idea that from a Unitarian minister way back in 1886, this idea that we are a faith that demands that we are moving onward and upward forever and ever. So it's quite the tension, I think, on the one hand, universalism, we are loved exactly as we are. There's nothing we've done to earn it, nothing we can do to lose it, this big love. And on the other hand, Unitarianism that says we must be ever striving, that it is through our character and through our actions that we achieve salvation. This is a pretty big tension. And it's one that I think exists not only in our faith and in some of our hearts, but I wonder about in our country too. This idea that we are born with certain inalienable rights, things that come to us just by being born, and this idea that there are some rights that have to be earned. I've been listening to it this way. This past summer and fall, I, like I'm sure many of you, have been reading and listening to the commentary that has come out of the events in Ferguson, Missouri, and here in St. Paul, Minnesota, and all over our nation, as we become more and more aware of the stories of police harassment and terrorization of black and brown people. And in this listening, I've been hearing things in a little bit of a new way. Maybe you've heard this too. I've heard the reporters talk about Michael Brown's death, about how he was shot and killed, and I've heard them call it a tragedy, the tragedy that it is. It's a tragedy made especially poignant, they say, because Michael Brown was a good kid. He was a different kid. He was an African-American kid who was gonna make it, even in a system that was stacked against him. His parents worked hard to raise him to stand apart, to stand separately from the other kids around him. He was one of the good ones, the reporters say. And it's such a tragedy, 
I mean, he was scheduled to start college the week after he was killed. This is a narrative I've learned to see, a narrative that some people call the good kid narrative. It's a dangerous one. It's seductive, I think. There are some elements of truth in it, of course, but it misses the main point entirely. It misses the point that all lives matter, that all black lives, that all brown lives, that all lives matter, whether we are good enough. Thank you. It's a seductive story, this good kid narrative, and I think we fall into it in all kinds of ways in our world. It misses the point that no matter what their color, no matter whether people are starting college next week or not, no matter how we wear our clothes, no matter if we are polite or compliant or not, with reasonable and unreasonable demands that are put upon us, all lives matter. All lives matter. That's what these commentators who are full of the universalist spirit of love and hope have been reminding me of, have been telling us. It's not just the good people that matter. It's not and it can't be. It can't just be the ones who are out there defying the expectations that are set in front of them. It's not just the lives that fit our society's particular expectation of what we ought to look like what size or shape we ought to be, how we ought to express our gender or form our families, all lives matter. All lives matter, whether we are going to college or not, whether we wait tables or run companies, whether we barely survive on social security and disability. All lives matter. That's what these commentators have been reminding me of. It's not just the heroes that are worthy of dignity and respect. And this is the heart, the absolute heart of our universalist faith in the past and in the present. The heart that says that no one is outside the circle of God's love or the universe's love or our love and acceptance. No one is outside that circle. These words have been said for generations and generations. There's a phrase I've heard that I love. It comes from the Reverend Robert Cummins, the father of our own minister emeritus, John Cummins, and he said back in 1943, a circumscribed universalism is unthinkable. A circumscribed universalism is unthinkable. And in this, he was meaning universalism is big enough, and he said, for those who are colored and colorless, for atheists and theists, for humanists, our universalism, the embrace is big enough for all of us. This heart of universalism tells us that no one should have to be good enough to not get shot when they are unarmed in their own neighborhood. Nobody should have to be good enough to not get deported back to a dangerous place. Nobody should have to be good enough to have enough to eat or to feel safe and secure. Nobody should have to be good enough for these basic things. That is what our universalist heritage tells us and calls us to live into. None of us should have to be good enough to earn our basic human rights, to earn basic kindness and compassion and fair treatment in this world. There are some things that are a given, universally by the grace of our very existence. There are some things that are a given, and one of those things is that we are, that we were born good enough. We are exactly 
enough, my mentor said. And we are never enough. We are exactly enough. And alone, we are never enough. This past summer, a colleague of mine had the privilege of spending some time at a conference with Elie Wiesel, the survivor of German concentration camps in World War II. He's a person who's gone on to write not only about suffering, but also about how we might change our world for the better. He has this full heart, this heart full of love. He's one of the world's most widely known authors. He's a man who has dedicated his life to creating peace. And at this conference, my colleague got to spend some time with him, and she asked him a question. Why, she wanted to know. Why did he think that the world had not heeded the charge he made in his Nobel Prize-winning speech 30 years before? Why had we not heeded his charge to make any place where people are being persecuted the center of the universe? Why hadn't we listened to his prophetic call? His response, she says, was simple. Perhaps he had not done enough. Perhaps he had not done enough. She said his words didn't come with his characteristic humility. They sounded more like they were coming from a place of deep weariness, a place of feeling defeated. Ellie Wiesel, come on. The man who had won the Nobel Prize, the man who survived concentration camps and still has a heart for peace, a heart full of love, he thought in that moment that maybe he hadn't done enough. He didn't talk about the way that fear and greed still rule the world. He didn't talk about the reality that not one of us can change the world alone. No, he thought about himself. He had not done enough. The story, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since I heard it. It breaks my heart that he could ever feel that way. But I'll tell you, it reminds me of something very important too. Every one of us, no matter our stories, no matter what we've done or not done, every one of us is human, even the heroes. Every one of us is human. Every one of us faces despair and hopelessness and a wondering at times about whether our lives have made the difference that they can, wondering if we are doing or being enough. All of us fall into this myth that alone we should be able to change everything. And for me, this is exactly where the hope comes in. This is where the hope arrives for me. This is where I think and I wonder and I believe that our Unitarian Universalist faith gets it right. This faith that tells us both that we are loved exactly as we are, can't earn it, can't do anything to lose it, and this faith that tells us we can always be striving and growing towards something better for ourselves and for our world. This tension might just get it right. And I say this because I have been in that place of hopelessness and despair at certain points, probably not the same as Elie Wiesel, but I have been in moments that have felt like that. And what restores me is remembering what it feels like to have somebody hold my hand in theirs, to have somebody hold my face in their hands and say, we've been waiting for you, to have somebody 
tell me or to know that I am loved exactly as I am, to feel myself a part of this larger, amazing, beautiful universe, to relax, to surrender and free fall even in despair and doubt, knowing that there is nothing I have ever done and can ever do to earn this all-surrounding grace of just being alive. This is the gift of our Unitarian Universalist faith, this foundation of love that can hold us and restore us, can restore our hearts and our families while holding us in this tension that says we can do better. We can restore our hearts, our families, our world through our actions. We can do this together. We are exactly enough, and alone we are never enough. This year, as we continue to live into our mission as a church, as we continue to give and receive and grow in love, we are taking a fresh look at all of our Faith in Action ministries. We are taking a fresh look at our social justice efforts, and we are shifting our way of looking at what we do and how we do it and why we do it. We are saying explicitly that we are a church committed to racial justice. And we are saying that we will look at race and racism and whiteness in all of our partnerships, in all of our efforts. We're moving away from some of our old ways, from this idea that social justice work or faith in action in the church is something that is done by a small group of really committed people who are out there protesting on our behalf every weekend. These folks that are gonna carry it alone. And we are moving toward a vision that says every moment of our lives, every relationship, every interaction, every moment is an opportunity for faithful action. For our children, for our adults, for our youth, for our elders, every moment of our lives is an opportunity for faithful, for faith-filled action. It happens in how we care for ourselves, how we care for each other, how we tend to our relationships and our communities, Every moment is an opportunity to act on our faith, to act in love. This shift we are engaging in is an important one. It means that we are engaging in faithful action when we sit alone or in a circle, listening deeply to where love is calling us next. It means we are engaging in faithful action when we treat ourselves and each other with love and respect. It means we are engaging in faithful action when we bring up the sometimes painful questions about how race and racism and whiteness are showing up. It means we are engaging in faithful action when we create respectful and compassionate environments that value all people and all voices in our families and communities. Each moment, each interaction offers us the opportunity to live out our faith. And as we make this change as a church, as people, I hear my mentor's voice ringing in my ears. You are exactly enough, she says. And alone, you are never enough. There is a larger story unfolding, a larger love holding us all, urging us on, reminding us of our power and possibility and of our place in this world as one among many each one of us doing what we can within the circles of our lives, sending out ripples of love and hope with each faithful action, ripples that meet one another 
to form a powerful current of love and justice that can and does change the world. May we know ourselves as a part of this larger river of life, this river of love, trusting that we are exactly enough and knowing that alone we are never enough. May it be so, and amen.